This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. On the occasion of the Hindi Language Day last year, I did an episode on the status of Hindi in India or to the debates about the national language question. Now that question fortunately or unfortunately has uh, resurfaced once again. Quite a few famous individuals, actors, politicians, ordinary people as well entered the fray and aired their opinion. I was reading um, one other aspect of the question. What did it feel like, this language question? How did it appear really to a foreigner? How did a foreigner look at the language or the national language question of India soon after India's independence. There was a long write-up by Christopher Rand in early 1956. He discusses at great length the status of English in India and the debate about Hindi emerging as the national language and indeed the language question in India in general. He says that uh, India's linguistic tide rips, very curious phrase, takes um, the foreigner by surprise. It was, in fact, among the first of uh, the many problems or challenges um, to catch the notice of a foreigner especially an American. The English spoken and written in India is closer or it appeared closer to the American than their language to the mother tongue, which is British English. And in some ways, it appeared to him to be more remote from the mother language or the British version. It is closer in some technical points, which is natural. Since the Indians studied it under British teachers or their immediate pupils, Indians put the British U in the words um, such as favor, honor. They use an S instead of a Z in words like civilization. They put the day before the month in writing dates. These things appeared quite striking to the American observer. And Indians use plural verbs with collective nouns like government and football team. The Indians have not had a Noah Webster to lead them away from the forms and usage of the British Isles, and they've not wanted one. English, that is correct by British standards, is their goal. 
observed rand and innovations are not encouraged the indian literary and journalistic circles there is an imputation that a man uses faulty english um a, a man using faulty english is really looked upon um as an insult a man who did not speak impeccably british english was considered as something of an inferior professional and the english language literature written by indians tended to shy away very consciously from the dialect and colloquialisms that play such a big part in contemporary writing elsewhere however if an american may say so said rand indian english is farther in spirit than american english from the mother tongue it is relatively stiff and archaic he thought this appeared quite natural to him since in india english is learned from textbooks rather than from mothers and from playmates and it is used in offices and schools rather than in homes and i'm talking about the 1950s here and there are quite amusing examples in ordinary conversation indians use formal words like proceed and notify which may reflect the fact that for them english is primarily a language of bureaucracy one can imagine the stiffness that american conversation and writing would take on if people in washingtons were suddenly to to decide how english would be spoken the english language press of new delhi tended to use long abstract words that seemed dull and flavorless to the american and of all indian cities he thought uh, only bombay produced anything like the breezy lively journalistic style to which the americans australians the canadians were familiar on the other hand the indians um he thought uh, had uh, a predilection a preference for abstractions uh they were adept at using english in discussing them they were so adept in discussing abstractions in english that uh, he thought the indian speakers and writers were constantly getting beyond his depth and uh, always appeared somewhat abstract to him now what reason for the stateliness the solemnity of indian english he thought was that a large number of leading indians majored in english literature during their university days and that was for them the best way of mastering a vital instrument english language those indians had studied the english classics with a thoroughness that would shame most americans shakespeare and keats he observed 
where perhaps the two English writers Indians are most familiar with. And the other one was, of course, um, Dickens. Um, Edmund Burke was another. Edmund Burke was, um, was quite regularly quoted by Indians um, who spoke or wrote in English. And uh, there was apparently an anecdote that the main library in Bombay used to replace its volumes, bark volumes or collective uh, works of Berkey with new copies every year. They were so great in demand um, to be lent and copied. Mikkeli uh, was apparently the other English writer Indians loved to quote regularly. And uh, Rand had heard that uh, Professor Hiren Mukherjee, the famous communist parliamentarian in the 1950s, uh, invoked Mekele more often than he invoked Marx. And then uh, there was Dickens, um, whose teeming world many Indians seem to know as intimately as they know their own. Rand came across uh, savage letters in Indian newspapers to in the, in the letters to the editor columns uh, written simply, these letters were written simply because an editorial misplaced, misnamed, or misquoted a minor Dickensian character. So, um, of course, it would not be true to say that Indians speak or spoke like Dickens, Shakespeare, or Bach. They certainly did not. But there is no denying, there was indeed no denying that close association with such writers had given them um, a rather vintage style, an archaic style of speaking, writing, and using the English language. So um, an American woman who had lived in India for, for a number of years recently dipped into Benjamin Franklin. And she was rather surprised that her prose, his prose, I'm sorry, the prose of Benjamin Franklin reminded her a good deal of the day-to-day -day conversations and publications of the New Delhi Press. So Indian English, uh, of course, um, besides being archaic at the time, also, um, also contained a number of homegrown peculiarities. Indians were apt to omit definite and indefinite articles, probably because native Indian languages and other Asian languages tended to do without these elements of speech. Indians were forever using the expression, isn't it, in such sentences as, hill men are excitable, isn't it? And if winter comes, can spring be far behind, isn't it? So um, they're also fond of a sort of continuing present tense. And that's something that many of us will be extremely familiar with. Uh, and Rand gives examples such as, uh, you must be knowing, or the tea is just now coming. But there is a twist here. He explains the precise meaning of such phrase in the sense that they were delightfully vague 
A Westerner would assume that the desired commodity or object was already on the way when someone said or would say, the tea is just now coming. Now, in reality, that is not necessarily what the Indian means. The tea may not have been brewed or a servant said to be coming may still be asleep or a taxi said to be coming, well, maybe um, out to deliver another passenger. So the statement merely indicated the continuous present tense by Indians merely indicated that what is wanted would probably appear at some point in time. So Indian English, um, in the eyes of a foreigner in the 1950s, had many such um, slightly altered meanings. And their effect was to inject a degree of vagueness into the English language, which um, apparently had become um, a vehicle of more precise senses in uh, Europe and in America. But the more interesting part of the piece appeared now when Rand spoke about the prospects of English in India, given that there had been a great deal of official support behind the introduction and promotion of Hindi as uh, the primary language in India. And he weighed a number of questions and concerns in this context about whether English would lose its primacy or what would happen if English were to lose its primacy. Now, native touches are, of course, expected to, to increase in the future, he thought, and the inflection with which Indian English was spoken was expected to become more marked. The Indian English had been largely cut off from its base. Comparatively few Englishmen um, taught the language in India during the 50s. And uh, he predicted that by the year 2000, and predicted quite correctly, I dare say, that by the year 2000, Indian English would be a language of its own, like American Ulick had become in the Americas. As a matter of fact, the teaching of English, even by Indian teachers, has been um, declining in India since the independence. School children were simply no longer being flogged over the English hurdles as before. Now, um, it was quite obvious and Rand tended to sympathize with this trend, but he thought it also had its drawbacks. Um, some believed that um, or predicted that uh, in a few years, a lecture in English will be hardly comprehensible to most young Indians entering college. And that once again proved quite tragically, I suppose, prophetic. Now, this would 
inevitably have an adverse effect on all branches of higher education in India, especially in sciences. For most of the scientific textbooks used in India were written by Englishmen and Americans. And many of the new scientific discoveries were presented to the world in English. The advantages of English were obvious, and the Indians might well have adopted it as the language of their universities, even if they had not been ruled by the British. Now, that, of course, is a somewhat controversial um, argument, but that's not a question that needs to, to, to bother or stop us at the moment. Now, in India, while there was a growing neglect to teach English, there was also no corresponding effort to switch um, to any other language. There was, of course, the plan to have Hindi in spite of its modest scientific resources uh, to take the place of English, but it did not seem to be working out even during the 50s. Now, as far as most Indians were concerned, Hindi was simply not moving in as fast as English had been moving out. For a majority of Indians, Hindi language was in fact still a regional language spoken in no more than four or five North Indian provinces. That in turn made it unwelcome to most of the Indians in the South and in the East. They tended to be jealous of the North, which traditionally dominated the rest of the country. The Southerners and Easterners would prefer to use English along with their various local languages to show that they were not going to surrender to the Northerners. And uh, these states had been quite slow in, in adopting and internalizing Hindi. So even in the mid-50s, no other pan-Indian languages was substituting or were substituting for English, um, not certainly on a national scale. Teaching, more and more teaching was being done in the various regional languages. 14 of them were already recognized as, uh, as uh, scheduled languages by India's constitution. So English was never going to go away, Rand thought. On the political side of Indian life, as distinct from the educational side, English was certainly one of the nation's strongest unifying factors. The other unifying factors he thought were the Hindu religion, the army, the railways. Quite intriguing that he did not consider the Hindi movies as a, a unifying factor in the 1950s. 
just about all of India's most important legal and administrative work um, was still carried out in English. And um, it was quite natural, he thought, that a master of that language, a master of English, should be the Prime Minister of India. At the same time, though, English as a symbol of the nation's uh, slavery or servitude um, was an anathema to the majority of Indian nationalists. And their sentiments dictated that it should be removed out of politics even more drastically than out of education. So in the sphere of politics, the heat for a change over to Hindi was far greater. Now, reading or listening to, to the doctrines circulating in the capital, he got the impression that by 1968, which was uh, the target set by the government for the campaign to nationalize Hindi, the, the impression he's got that by 1968, Hindi would actually become the national language of politics, if not the national language of education. But there are reasons um, to doubt that as well. There was another aspect uh, of India's current politics, and that was the state's reorganization. Um, that involved a redefinition of the country's internal boundaries. Um, it had not taken place as yet in 1956. When the British left India um, in '47, they left rather quickly and they left the new government with a number of basic problems. One of those basic problems was what to do about uh, the princely states. Their existence seemed uh, quite hard to reconcile with the new India. Between 1947 and 1950, the government took away what remained of their autonomy and pretty much reorganized them in a rather haphazard, impromptu fashion as states in the Republic of India. For the years between um, 1950 and 56, um, several officials in New Delhi had been complaining about these states. Uh, they thought that these states were anachronism. They said that uh, the borders of the states, which date uh, from ancient times, were irrational in terms of modern conditions and lead to a number of difficult problems for administration. Now, India has a number of troublesome boundary lines, um, which also stemmed from historical alignments that have very little relevance uh, in the 1950s. Now, in 1953, um, New Delhi set up the state's reorganization commission to study the ways um, in which the states could be 
reorganized more rationally. The commission's report um, had just been published in early 1956 and called for consolidation of India's provinces uh, and uh, princely states into 15 large states. But there was an important um, dimension, an important dimension of that report had to do with uh, language. Where the report ignored language, its recommendations met with violent resistance and even rioting. There was a riot in Bombay, for instance, in early 1956. And New Delhi, the government had to practically give in to the rioters. Now, the point to be made or the point that Rand made in that context was that um, these agitations tended to give regional languages um, an advantage over Hindi. Each state was to have its own language and not Hindi. And that was the language in which it was to conduct its official affairs. Now, that situation was what a more serious consideration. The idea of India, Americans and, um, and Europeans tended to think of India as a national entity comparable to Russia or, or the United States. But they overlooked generally the fact that both Russia and the United States had a well-established national language and India did not. So the establishment of Hindi as a national language was not the only instance in which the government said one thing and the realities proclaimed another. That, of course, is a slightly different question to which we don't need to return right now in this episode. What struck me about the observations of Rand is how prophetic some of them had been. When we look back to these what seemed sweeping observations in the mid-50s. What do you think about the question of national language in India? Do write to us, do send us messages, and I'll be very happy to take them up and talk about at greater length in the future episodes of History Chatter. This is Onirban. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode of History Chatter. Do listen in to History Chatter in Epilogue Media and your favorite streaming platforms.